0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
0: You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another word in your ear. And uh, this time we're talking to Michael Cragg, who's the author of Reach for the Stars, 1996 to 2006 Fame, Fallout, and Pop's Final Party. I must just to introduce it, um, I must just point out when I received a copy of this book from the publisher, it, it had a very nice little note from the publisher saying, This might not be your thing musically, but I think you'll enjoy it. And you know, I very often get these these things saying you d- you don't like this kind of music, therefore you won't be interested in the story. Nothing could be further from the truth. Absolutely, and the story is absolutely fascinating. And very often, the less you know about it, the more interesting the book is. You know, because there's an enormous amount of stuff covered in this in this uh, in this thick volume, which is okay in the shape of an oral history. And so, Michael, welcome. First Thank of all, can you can you kind of map out the kind of time scheme there? Why 1996? Why 2006? Buffalo Fed is just tidy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, initially it wasn't as tidy. So I knew I wanted to start in 96 because that's when, obviously Take That had split up and kind of Britpop was sort of taking over. Pop was sort of in the doldrums slightly in this country. And then obviously a few months later, out of nowhere, the Spice Girls arrived with Wannabe and sort of, Kickstarted what follows you know pop was suddenly back shiny bright you know it was suddenly marketed towards younger people as well which kind of hadn't happened as much before or not in the intense way that they obviously did with the merchandise and everything was very sort of focused down to to young kids and sort of steps followed in that wake and s club seven and i thought well you know they Kickstarted started that, so it makes sense to start with them. I didn't want to leave them out. But my initial idea was to run the noughties, but how can you start in 2000 without mentioning the Spice Girls? So Right, of course. Yes. Then it got pushed back to 96, and then I thought, well, I can finish in 2009, but then it's like, well, why is it this weird sort of 14-year period? And so the very clever Peter Robinson of Pop Justice fame, when I interviewed him for the book he was one of the first people and he's he sort of was like well this doesn't really make sense and he came up with the sort of 10-year thing purely because we we talked about it and we were like well top of the pops ended in 2006 smash right. hits closed okay. in two thousand six. Right, so, oh well is. that's a good thing yes. <laughs> yeah simon and pop mckeita world left closed, yeah right. pop world they they left pop world cduk smtv that was all changing around that time so then it sort of felt like it made a bit more sense. And it was the end of
1: an era, wasn't it? It was Yeah, and
2: TV talent shows was sort of taking over, you know, the way like pop stars were even found and kind of all of that process was completely changing. So that was quite a neat way of of doing it. So were were you a, a fan or a student of this? I was, I used to buy Smash Hits magazine when I was young. I used to buy Top of the Pops, I used to buy Big, all of those kind of magazines. I sort of, Loved all of that. I loved the kind of way it was written. I loved the sort of humor around it. And I did like a lot of that stuff around that time. But as I got older, I sort of went to the dark side, to the other side. <laughs> and I got into like guitars and indie when I was at university. But my housemate at university would listen to a lot of this stuff. And I l- still loved it. You know, I did. I would sort of hide that slightly, you know. <laughs> I was going through yeah. You're trying to wean
1: yourself off the shiny yeah, I was, pop I was by was trying to make through... yourself like Radiohead and indie, you know, and, and it failed, didn't it? I mean, basically... Yeah, it
2: completely failed because as soon as I sort of became a journalist, I started working at Pop Justice. I wrote mainly about pop. I kind of only really write about pop. Not only, but like I enjoy writing about pop still now, obviously did this book. Um, so I couldn't keep it hidden for that long. But a lot of that was tied up in stuff I was going through as a person and, you know, trying to sort of hide who I was, my sexuality. It felt a lot easier to sort of, it felt like giving too much information away to sort of be into this kind of music, which is something that you sort of work through as you get older. But yeah, so I was, I was into it, but I would sort of, keep it slightly hidden. I oh, loved, right. yeah. and then I really, you know, there was a point where I talk about in the book, you could say that you liked Girls Aloud and you could say that you liked Sugar Babes because they were in enemy. They were being written about by so-called serious journalists because suddenly it was like made by Xenomania and, you know, it was done in this sort of interesting way and it had all these amazing references to sort of, music that was okay to like, I guess. And it had guitars in it <laughs> yeah. An Arctic monkeys covered love machine. And suddenly everyone yeah, was like, Oh my God. Was it? Yeah. yeah. And so there were little bits of where I could sort of peek out and be like, Oh, I like this too. And then as you get older, you decide I don't really care. Right. And obviously optimism and people writing about pop changed and people do sort of write about pop in a more serious way. And they do take it slightly more seriously and they aren't as sort of afraid to say that they like it now.
1: So, just, go on, Mark. Go no, I just, I just wanted to ask, uh, just to get thinking, talk, uh, talking about the Spice Girls, there's a bit where Christopher Herbert, I think it is, her mm. former manager, says something like uh, that if you form a boy band, only 50% of, of the audience are likely to be interested. And if you form a girl band, 100%, because boys will buy records by girl bands, but boys will not buy records by boy bands. Would you agree with that?
2: I guess, I guess that was the sort of very surface level thinking was that girls fancy boys. And so girls would be drawn to a boy band and yeah. they wouldn't be drawn to a girl band weirdly because they would be jealous. There would be like this sort of jealousy thing there, or they would be like, they wouldn't necessarily, there was this weird thinking that they wouldn't necessarily buy music by a girl band and boys wouldn't be into boy yeah. bands. And I can see it's not the coolest thing to say that you're into Westlife as a young boy. You know, they try, I think Chris took that and he made five later on because I think he thought that a slightly more kind of lad band would have that bigger appeal where it wouldn't be as embarrassing to say that you liked a five song because there were elements of sort of hip hop and it was slightly like harder edged on the spectrum of Westlife to five. But I think, you know, the, the thinking was that the Spice Girls would never work. You know, that in the book, we talk about how Smash It sort of, Ignored them, how. Yes. Yeah, know, they did. They wouldn't let them perform <laughs> in the office and all that's amazing. Well, the editor just didn't come out and they wouldn't put them in the magazine. And they felt like the blue tones were where the magazine was headed. Like literally. <laughs> that's right. The, the blue tones. Right. <laughs> When like the blue tones were on the cover before the Spice Girls, they were. So, you say
1: is the kind of the the, the beginning the beginning of the end of Smash Hits because they were kind of then slightly ostracised by Spice, Spice
2: Girls. Yeah, and obviously Peter Lorraine at Top of the Pops magazine just sort of came in and was like, yeah, "We're going to yeah. own yeah. if we can own this, and it becomes as big as it became, then we can kind of get ahead." And they started selling more copies.
0: Yeah. So why did, in your view, did, were the Spice Girls so enormous?
2: Well, I just think, I mean, a wannabe is sort of this this kind of insane moment in time where if you listen to it now it still doesn't really make a whole lot of sense it kind of pop had kind of got quite static and sort of stayed like take that were great but they had even towards the end they were moving into a more mature sort of back for good kind of vibe and the spice girls were like hang on this is like female friendship this is like having fun this is like being raucous it's what kids kind of imagined they would do if they got to run through like a hotel in the video they got to like have a food fight there was all this like fun and if it's sort of if pop's meant to be dysfunctional like that's where that kind of came back I think and obviously they were also clever in their sort of marketing the lyrics to that song are very clever especially as we say to sort of get a female fan base to talk about friendship rather than like Boys or love or heartbreak it's like if you were in a gang at school this is your anthem like this is your song and you know the guy who Biff Stannard talks about it and he sort of calls it like this punk record and it did have that sort of does have that kind of weird energy in it that's sort of like it could fall apart at any moment I think they recorded it at 3am or whatever or finished it like overnight and it's done quickly and it has this sort of unpolished feel to it which just felt exciting and Was there one Spice Girl, do you think, that was in any way more integral to their success? than I think Jerry, I just don't think you can ignore Jerry. I mean, Jerry and Mel B was sort of the... I think Jerry just kind of epitomised that period of like just not letting anyone tell them that they couldn't do it. And I think that sort of fed into the song. Like, wannabe, especially the video, everything about that wasn't meant to happen. They didn't want the video, they didn't want the song, the label... They tried to make it more R&B because that's kind of what they thought was selling. Jerry was like, "No, we're not reshooting the video." I think she just drove it all forward. And also like I think she would be the first to say she's not like the best singer, she wasn't the best dancer, but she was like the best pop star, which isn't you don't have to be those things necessarily. It's not always about that. It's about having that sort of secret Edge, which later became The X Factor, I guess. But um, so,
0: Yeah, so, so the thing that um, strikes me, goes through the whole book, is that um, this is a, it's a different generation of pop stars, wasn't it? Yeah. These, these were not bedroom dreamers, were they? These, these were people who got out and did things. <clears throat> and the one thing that, that screams from every page is the fantastic ambition of people. You know yeah. what I mean they, they hey, tell us a bit about who were they what kind of people were they you know were they stage school kids or
2: you know what kind of backgrounds did they come from these people? I think what's great is that you do get like the full spectrum of that because the spice girls were made up of people who had been to auditions they had some of them been to sort of drama school, but they had also done kind of butlins you know they had done those sort of like holiday as had steps you know h was a sort of red coat or whatever and so they had this mix of like some of them were trying to sort of sidestep from stage school into pop stardom which kind of makes sense but others you know that's not what they were doing they were just looking for a job and they were looking in the stage and they were sort of trying to figure out that way but then you have someone like the sugar babes who were 14 just mates at school. A friend of a friend knew like a manager he heard one of them sing they were brought into a studio at that age and suddenly the manager was like you're the sugar babes and so they were sort of ambitious in that they wanted to make music together and sing and that's what they loved doing but they didn't want to be they didn't necessarily want to be in a girl band it sort of happened around them and they were just sort of from normal kind of working class families who just had a friend who sort of knew a friend. And then you have someone like S-Cup 7 who obviously were much more, I think a lot of them were stage school. Or yeah. sort of, certainly more than, I mean, Joe tells an amazing story of just working in like a sort of restaurant where as soon as someone puts something yes. on a song, she has to get up and sing. You know, yeah. She wasn't sort of from that world. She was just someone that had a really good voice and got sort of discovered. And Bradley was working in Chasington World of Adventures. And had been auditioning, but wasn't like in a world where it was easy for him to sort of not work and then hopefully land. But if
0: you'd been to loads of auditions, you were, you become unembarrassable, don't you? Yes. You've dealt with humiliation and rejection from quite an early age, which most people don't. So yeah. it makes these people really bulletproof, doesn't it? You know, yeah. Because that was the thing about the Spice Girls. You know, talking about they coming to the Smash Hits office, they wanted to mime to their single, didn't they? Or sing yeah. up or yeah. in
2: the office. That yeah. was inconceivable. Nobody would have done that. No, and you know, they wanted really? to sit on people's laps and do dances for them, <laughs> and they wanted to show who they were. And 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 I think they did already have that. It wasn't like I think obviously later on. S Club 7 would go in and do the same thing because Simon Fuller had done it before but it wasn't the same like the Spice Girls I think you couldn't stop them from doing those things if you wanted to if they wanted to run right in your office and that's what they would do but yeah like I mean the things that you'd have to do in an audition I think in the five chapter they talk about having to sort of suddenly dance to just a song not even like singing along to yeah. it, just literally stand there and dance and as much as they talk about how embarrassing it was, I'm sure that wasn't the first thing. But they time did, it. They, it. They did done, it. they did it. <laughs> yeah, and Russell Brown was there, and he can never say that that's not true because, you know, he was there too. He tried to get into Five. Oh really? <laughs> did yeah. he? <laughs> yeah. He one of one of the members of Five was like Russell Brown was there. He sort of says it's not true now, but he was. Oh right That's extraordinary It's so, cause it's this circuit I guess it's you know blue would often be the members of blue would often be in auditions with sort of Will Young, who's trying to get into a boy band early on. you know that it was this sort of like if you didn't make it into one, you would try and get into another one, and I think that's that's quite i don't know it's quite pure in a way, like they just wanted to get into a band. they wanted this to sort of happen in one way or another.
1: Actually, if we're talking about blue, there are two fantastic stories in the book, which you should, you should just tell both of them. They're so good. One's the Donatella Versace thing. And then the other is the story of, uh, of the 9-11 controversy, which would be really interesting to discuss. But just tell us the Donatella Versace story for people who don't know. It's amazing. Yeah.
2: So she wanted, uh, her favorite band, her favorite British band to come and appear or just to come to her show in Italy on, in Fashion Week. And so she invited who she thought was her favorite band. And off they came, they went and got dressed up. They brought over in a private jet, when they? Brought over in. on a private jet, they got to like wear Versace clothes, they were all stood in a line, and she obviously came along and was introduced to who she thought was her favourite band, and they all were like, well, that's weird, she was quite sort of off with us, that's strange. Cold. And so this is Blue, and Blue were like, oh my God, how exciting, like, this is amazing, and then obviously she wanted Blur, and had asked for Blur, but somewhere along the line it had become Blue, and so she got Blue when she wanted Blur. And I think years later... So we're not blaming her for this? We're not blaming her necessarily. I think there was a, a loss of communic- breakdown in communication. But um, years later, I think she tagged Anthony or Anthony Costa from Blue into something saying... Because I think it's obviously got picked up in this sort of you know nostalgia obviously but there was like an anniversary of it and it got picked up by a sort of Instagram account and she added him in and sort of laughed about it because I think it's very funny but they were very excited and they couldn't understand why she didn't recognize them when she came down the line and was just sort of staring at them like this isn't Damon Albarn like where's Damon Albarn um so yeah that's a funny story but the 9-11 thing, was the question, was
1: it Lee Ryan who made this flip comment? Yeah. It's just tell us about that, because that's really interesting, because in the, in the age of
2: social media, this would have been, I think, the end <sighs> of the group. But uh, Yeah, 100%. It. it would have been, and obviously in America it, it was. They were, I think they were literally just starting to sort of go to America, and it did end it there. But, so they had filmed the video for their third single, if you come back, in New York on the day, on September the 11th. So they were standing in Brooklyn, Filming when it happened, and I think the first plane going into the tower, they sort of saw that happen, and so everyone was obviously hysterical. they couldn't use their phones. they got taken to uh Tarrytown, I think it is, which is sort of further away, obviously, and atomic Kitten, who they were on their label with, were also filming a video. I think they were about to start like the next day, so they were in this place together, obviously you know they didn't know what was going on, they couldn't contact their families. They then shot the video, I think. Or they had... No, they had to come back, I think. They came back maybe, like, two weeks later, straight into going to, like, do a show, straight off the plane, straight into, like, press, straight into everything. And then maybe a few days later, they went... They got taken to the sun. And this was in the early days, obviously, of the internet. So they were doing a sort of live Q&A online, and their press person didn't know that this was happening. So... They got asked about it because obviously it had just happened and everyone was talking about it, you know. And they knew, I think, that they had been in New York. So they were asking them lots and lots of questions. And Lee said what he said, which was... I can't remember exactly, but it was along the lines of, like, why are we talking about this so much, you know, when elephants are dying around the world? Yeah, that's right. I know. And, you know, so then that that happened. And obviously everyone was hysterical and they had to try and put the various fires out and, you know, Hugh Goldsmith, who is who ran that label, was trying, you know, was in a pub on holiday, like in the middle of nowhere and had to set up a sort of, like, emergency room of trying to get people to just sort of not run it, but obviously...
0: There's a lot of talk of kind of war rooms and things like this. Yeah, I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a huge amount of um, energy is put into kind of dealing with yeah. the press and the media. Well, I wanted to ask you, I, one of the things that struck me when reading it, I thought, What's the name of Chris Morris's film? Was it Four Lions or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And I thought, Chris Morris ought to make a film of this. You know what <laughs> I mean? and, and you thought, is it, is it a tragedy or is it a comedy? You know, because it, it, there's definitely farcical elements, mm. there's tra- definitely tragical elements. And one of the things that strikes me all the way through the book is the people are really, everybody you talk to <clears throat> is kind of really needy. I'm not afraid to tell you they're needy. You know
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question?
0: I mean, they yeah. tell you how heartbreaking this was, because because kind of triumph
2: and disaster was built into it, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> was and it? you knew you knew that it was short term. You knew that it was sort of the ups and downs of it were just kind of part of it. I think, and they obviously they didn't know. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask them a lot was, did you know what you were signing? Like, how much money were you making? Like, did you know what these contracts meant? Because obviously they were only young. They were like 19, 20, Mm -hmm. a lot of them, or maybe even younger. And the amount of times they'd have to get their parents to read it and sign it because they weren't old enough. And I think you're right. Like there is a, everyone that wants to be famous or a pop star has a certain neediness there because they want to be but it's at.
1: astonishing that they, there's a bit about five where they're living in this massive house and they're renting all these, they have all these limousines and all that without mm. realizing that they're paying for it, you know. And yeah. this has happened decade in, decade out in the history of yeah. pop music that, that there's some gullible bunch of kids will say get signed up to a deal that's completely yeah. draining them. I
2: can't what believe I thought, that still
0: happens. What, what I thought was managers.
2: really. Interesting was the Steps story is is slightly different. They're very aware, even back then, of what they're spending. They didn't really want to go on tour with Britney Spears in America because they knew it would cost them money. They knew the money was coming out of their budget. I think because they were a tiny bit older and they'd had jobs before and they'd kind of been in this industry a tiny bit. And even that very small amount of experience, I think, had given them what they needed to just think, hang on. Whereas everyone else... Quite rightly, in a way, you're 18. You've been. You're like, oh, you can live in this five-bedroom house with your bandmates. you're, it's like uni, but you're gonna. It's free, <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, and then it's not free, you know. And then it can be taken away within like a week if they get dropped. It's like because that's. Out. Yeah. I
0: was saying to Mark last night the the word that is used throughout this book more than any other word is the word dropped. Yeah, when we were dropped, we were about to be dropped. So. Because The deal was they all these things had to be financed by somebody, didn't they? And it was record companies, really. Post Spice Girls, they all thought, All right, we've put a couple of million pounds into this mm. act, and, and it would cost that much, wouldn't it? For yeah. videos, making the record, all that kind of thing. But they were they were sort of like contract players in the 1930s in the movies, which was. <laughs> you know, if you did if they didn't like you anymore, you were just put on the sidelines, were you? They yeah. they had no
2: power. Yeah. And also they were often at that age, you know will young had gone to university and he was one of the only few people that had experienced actual university but for a lot of them this was their university time so they were like this is where we have all of this fun and we live in this house but obviously there was a point where that could just be taken away completely but for them they had kind of moved out of home so they didn't want to then go back home they didn't want to like go backwards and so a few of them would then be like well i'm gonna go and start my life now and move in with a friend and i'm not going to be." You know, I can't go backwards. But for some of them, they did have to make that what must have been incredibly embarrassing sort of backwards step. And then you're not famous anymore. You're not Lee from Nine One One. You're not, you know, Lee from Steps or whatever. You are now. I used to be in a band. I used to be in a boy band, and I've especially got so if you're much
1: sympathy for them, you know, the yeah, bit, bit we talk th- about. McFly couldn't go to football matches unless they took security with them, because yeah, they people call, would see them and, th- they, yeah. and they would be beaten up and attacked for being members of McFly. Well, or that- they
2: couldn't go to like you couldn't go, especially I think with Busted and McFly, where they did like those bands. They did like yeah. guitar bands. They did like the bands that were being written about an enemy. But if they went to the gigs they would get names thrown at them and they'd get called all sorts or they'd be written about in those publications in a way that was sort of... No, I really felt it was a tough life. And also we should talk about the money side of it because very few of those people appeared to be in a
1: position where they can make a large amount of money because they weren't part of the songwriting team.
2: Yeah, exactly. So you don't have that revenue stream that people have more now, even in pop where they are involved in the songwriting because songwriters were writing songs for Simon Cowell or for Simon Fuller they weren't writing them for the pop stars necessarily you know right. they didn't they're interchangeable in that way if if one song can't go here then they could give it to someone else and you know Savan Kotecha who's an incredibly successful songwriter now he said he would just write songs for Simon Cowell's taste like he knew what Simon Cowell wanted when he was making a Westlife album yeah and so he would write with him in mind not with Westlife in mind and not with what maybe Westlife, now, like as they got older, what they were kind of into, or the fact that they maybe didn't want to sing ballads anymore. It's like, well, Simon wants ballads for your album well, because that's what makes a lot of money.
0: On the basis of your, uh, your when you wanted to be an indie kid, mm. uh, d- did you ever subsequently find any of your indie heroes turning up amongst the songwriting teams of some? Kind of unlikely pop star, you know. Well, there's obviously Andy McCluskey, formerly of orchestral manoeuvres, who was
2: yeah. I mean, very I successful,
0: wasn't he? Yeah.
2: And Johnny Marr, I remember. Like Johnny Marr is on the Last Girls Allowed album, and obviously uh, he plays guitar on a couple of the tracks. And obviously Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe uh, wrote uh, the Loving Kind, which is on they wrote it for their album while they were working with Xenomania, but it ended up a Girls Aloud single. So there were like, there were little moments like that where you were like, oh, I I think especially with Girls Aloud, especially with Xenomania, because that's almost like a, Brian was, Brian Higgins was reacting against what was happening. He hated everything that was happening with the sort of manufactured pop, with the kind of Swedish sound. So he was, I'm going to pull from like my influences of like, New Order and The Smiths and you know, I'm going to bring in members of like KLF's touring band to play on this Girls Aloud song and it's like those things aren't supposed to happen in that way and everything I think that they did was the opposite of what was going on at the time and I think you know I love I think those songs are absolutely incredible but it was a way in for some people who were dismissive of what had come before it was pop that's okay to like because there were guitars involved and it's um, so
1: perilous isn't it the Andy McCluskey section talking about Atomic Kitten I thought was riveting mm.
2: you know,
1: where he he's suddenly his own music is, is not fashionable anymore it's all kind of grunge mm. and indie and so he decides on the advice of a member of Craftwork to write electronic songs and invent a group to, to perform them and then there's the whole business of the, of the single was it whole, whole again Yeah. and where it, it, they're about to be dropped and then the thing flops and then they were offered a chance to I think Celine Dion wanted to record it and Britney Spears wanted to record it and they did yeah let them and yet still they somehow managed to get a hit i mean the whole thing is just so up and down isn't
2: it and even within that like you forget that people would release albums in other countries before they'd release them here so whole again if you ever get the version of the album that came out in japan whole again is completely it's all spoken word with hardly any with just the chorus <laughs> so kerry does nearly all of the song and then the chorus comes in yeah, And someone was like, that song is great, but that, that can't be the version that we release. So we need to sort of redo it for when the album comes out in the UK. So Hole Again itself almost didn't exist in the in the way that it did. And that obviously saved their career. And I think they were a bit sceptical of the spoken word because Never Ever was really big, like All Saints. And that obviously had that spoken word intro. So there were all these things at play that almost meant that they never really made it. And they had to put a lot of money into that band to kind of make that work and whole Again sort of save them, really. And then obviously, just as it was becoming a hit, Terry leaves the band. So you always need to be ready with like a replacement as well, like the Sugar Babes later on. It was constantly like the brand has to continue regardless yeah. of whether the players are the same. You know, the brand of Sugar Babes, the brand of Atomic Kitten, Let's just replace the members and move on, which is what they had to do very quickly.
0: When one of the things that struck me is that um, it's not just the story of music; it's the story of media. This this book, you mm. know, you know, it goes through. It starts in the kind of smash hits era, doesn't it? And then it's the heat era, mm. and then subsequently it's the TV era, isn't it? And then it's the internet yeah. era, I suppose, and uh, <clears throat> so a lot of the latter half of the book is, uh, you know, is X Factor and uh, and and so forth. And I want to ask you, television kind of takes over at this point, doesn't it really? Yeah. yeah. And what do you think is most, which is the most cynical business, the music business or the television business?
2: I mean, in the context of this, I think the TV section... I don't. Want to, I don't want to say that it takes the fun out of it because I want people to read the second half of the book. But I do think, like, once the TV stuff started to come in and that that TV talent show world started, I think that's when some of the joy started to come out of the whole. That's process.
1: really interesting. Why? Why do you think that? Because I agreed
2: with you. I th- it's just literally this conveyor belt that you can see, and I think even yeah. before that, it was behind the scenes, and we weren't sort of privy to everything and every yeah. sort of, and also people need to be nurtured you know they need to have time before this starts like almost all of those bands maybe aside from sort of s club seven had had some sort of not huge struggle but they had had to sort of hone what they were doing they had had to fight for songs they had to sort of work out who they were in within this like mechanism and you don't get that on tv talent shows you're presented as is and actually as is is what they want they don't necessarily want you you have to balance out being polished, but also being, like, real. You can't be who you are in the first audition and then suddenly come back as a completely different person because that doesn't work for, like, the audience who are primed to sort of yeah, look at you Yeah, via
1: TV, people. you knew so much about... I mean, like, Hearsay were kind of created on TV, really as in yeah.
2: d 7. You, you kind of knew everything there was to know about these groups. There was no sense of mystery. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think there's an amazing story that sort of sums it up, which is... Uh, one of Hearsay, whose name I have suddenly can't remember. Oh, come on, Michael. You can do this. <laughs> one of Hearsay, one of the women in Hearsay that isn't Mylene and Kim. Oh, so annoying. Um, She sort of had short hair when she was in the audition stage. And then when they sort of were revealed as the band, she had long hair, which was obviously just extensions. And everyone was like, there was a bit of like, oh, who do you think you are? You know, like, how dare you sort of like have this glow up? Like, and it's like, well, that's, isn't that the point? Like, isn't the point of pop to sort of before that was to turn sort of normal people into pop stars to sort of have this, like, I'm a pop star now. Like I'm wearing this ridiculous outfit. I'm in this crazy world. I'm singing, you know, that was the whole point, but people, especially with hearsay, I think hearsay is such an interesting, because people forget that wasn't a live TV show. We didn't vote. There was no public interaction. It was like a documentary that had already been filmed. The only sort of live element was when they revealed who the final five were but we didn't vote on them but in the book they say that people thought that they had they remember that they had and also I think at the time what you had was this weird sense of like because we weren't involved we felt like they were above their station somehow that they had got this kind of competition they'd won this competition but actually like we weren't really involved and so they were sort of torn down very quickly they went from selling, having the biggest selling debut single of all time to sort of their second album, not making the top 20, to being like attacked in the street, to splitting up. (laughs) You know, and that took 15 months, maybe. And that's that's crazy. And then you sort of have this kind of splinter group, Liberty X, who actually had much more time to work out who they wanted to be. They didn't want to work with Pete Waterman. They didn't want to be in that sort of world they wanted to do sort of garage they wanted to do r&b and so they had a bit more time and then they became ultimately much more successful
0: so why you know is it all over you know what do you say pop's final party in the in the line of the book
2: why pop's final party why what it just felt like i mean nowadays like the charts the charts are so complicated no one really understands them it's really sort of convoluted people aren't really having i mean people are having hits i don't want to sound like no no but you know what i mean like you could be in a but you go
0: down the road would people know what the number one record in the uk yeah because
2: the charts are so you know streaming has sort of changed everything and the internet is you know social media has changed everything for pop stars i feel like this was a period where they were having a lot of fun like i I hope that comes across in the book that there were hugely fun things that they oh, were doing. Yeah. They were doing magazine yeah. shoots, TV stuff. There were, like, road shows. There were festivals. There was all this stuff to do. They were all big in, sort of, Germany. They were going to Japan. Like, they were doing all of that. And, obviously, that's kind of... That's, like, sort of five level, you know? Or even a band like All-Stars. They were big in, like, other countries. And now I think you either have to be, sort of, Dua Lipa or that's kind of it, you know, to, to sort of live that kind of full, fun, pop star life now. And, obviously, social media has put a huge amount of pressure on people. It's put a pressure on people to sort of talk about specific things, to sort of, yeah. in one way, it's great that people are talking about mental health and things more now. And obviously, like in this book, you wish that there were those conversations happening, especially with, you know, people Sean from Five and Siobhan when she was in The Sugar Babes and things. But I feel like also now there is, those conversations do happen and they are sort of, not forced, but they are sort of expected to talk about a lot of things that maybe that's right. They don't always want to sort of talk about, and there's like a heaviness around some pop now. I think which really you
0: can't be. Fri- it's very difficult to be frivolous. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You and they it's do very live- hard because somebody is waiting in the wings to to accuse yeah. you of taking something lightly that you really shouldn't take lightly. Yeah, in the country. nature of pop music for, for years yeah. was you can say what you like. This is yeah. a little playpen.
2: It's not like real life at all. Yeah, and you can have fun. You can sort of have, like, little beefs with people in magazines to yeah, yeah. answer yeah, that yeah. silly question. But I guess also <clears throat> the problem with this period was it, it did become a prison, so it was hard for yeah, them to come right. out of, you know, A1, for example. They sort of <laughs> were trapped in this kind of boy band, curtains, covers, kind of, like, glossy thing, and they did try to break out of it with that third album, which... Has some really great moments and is produced by someone who had done sort of Travis and those kind of bands. And Caught in the Middle is amazing as a song, but people weren't as interested because it wasn't what they wanted from them. And they, as they got older, a lot of these acts tried to kind of change, but they couldn't because this maybe this fun, kind of frivolous thing had become. A prison around them, really. And also, isn't some of the the
1: the, the, the interest in, it, in the fact that they're all groups? <laughs> You're virtually. Yeah, asked, I was going to say everybody's yeah. yeah. a group. Now, I look to the charts the other day, it's, it's all solo. solo. It's all yeah. solo acts. So once yeah. there's a group, there's the internal dynamic there's of that group, absolutely, and who your favorite is and who your favorite isn't. You know, yeah. And, that's and all I think gone, because
2: of the amount of magazines as well, yeah, you could have a favorite. You could have magazines could just pluck one out of a band. There'd always be someone available. You know, you'd have yeah. sort of seven in S Club Seven. You could yeah. mix the girls from s club seven with the girls from steps and you could make a cover out of that and you i think they just thought like the more people involved the more fans they'd have the more there's one for everyone there's sort of someone that everyone can like but yeah i did struggle because i did interview solo people but it was like well how do they fit in to the sort of because they almost existed separately and there weren't that many of them you know or they had come from a band you know rachel stevens had a completely different kind of story Yeah, Rachel Stevens did have solo stuff, but obviously she came from S Club 7, and the Spice Girls each had solo stuff, but there weren't... You know, Craig David was sort of one of the few, like, huge solo stars.
1: Craig David, whose career is destroyed so cruelly and so instantly, virtually overnight, by Bo Selector. I can't think of anybody falling out of favour so fast. It was just a pull Yeah,
2: I mean, it was a mix of things as well. Like, I tried to get across in the book how weird people were about Britain and America in this sort of, like... I just remember so many times people accusing British pop stars of becoming too American. There was this real sort of like separation. And I think Craig, because he was big in America with that first album, he did slightly tip into that, like that second album. I mean, A, it's called Watch Your... No, the single's called Watch Your Flavor. Like not a great song to come back with, but also a super glossy video, very like Americanized, very sort of like using the lingo of sort of what people thought kind of Americans used. So there was this distrust, I think, then, and I think that also didn't help. So once that had started to slip, I think the Bo Selector thing chimed with that and yeah. sort of solidified around it. And I think for a long time, people just thought the two were sort of enmeshed together. And That's right. luckily, like, he did have a career renaissance because he's obviously incredibly talented. Well, it's an extraordinary
0: story. Uh, it's... Uh... And you, you know, I can, I can only, you know, go back to the point I made at the beginning. It's nothing to do with whether you happen to like the music or not, and I'm sure a lot of people do. But, it, but it is, it's genuinely a, a, you know, a huge historical period, you know, which tells you a lot about about not just music but about the world media and culture. how the world changed and and media and and we all changed during that yeah. during that period of time, and. Uh, and I really think you should recommend it to Chris Morris. I think... Yeah, that's I, a really good idea. Four yeah, lines <laughs> is the way to go. I'll, I'll let you have that idea for nothing. Thank Thanks you so much. And, and all the very best with it, Michael. Oh, thank and you. Great to talk to you.
1: This podcast was brought to you
0: by The Word.